Conspiracy and White House Blues. And tonight, this is Truth Quest. And for some reason, the sound is a little bit off. I hope I have uh, 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 Alan Watt on the line. I do, don't I? Uh, yeah. Okay. Pipe up the volume a little bit. Yeah. Okay. How's that? That's better. Okay. All right. And so this is KHEN 106.9 Salida. And with my and tonight with my co-host Dr. Eric Carlstrom, and uh, again we'll introduce Alan Watt. Um, go ahead. Well, um, okay, uh, we have with us Alan Watt, who has a, a website uh, called Cutting Through the Matrix, and he uh, lives in Canada but grew up in Scotland, and he has. Uh, really got a holistic uh, grasp, I think, of what's going on in the world right now. Uh, he's been, I think, doing a lot of uh, radio uh, talk show uh, interviews lately. Is that correct, Alan? Yeah, and I've been on RBN, my own show as well. 
Yeah, and we're lucky enough to have him with us from Ontario. I think it's probably two hours later, so we really appreciate you joining us, Alan. No, and it's a pleasure. And we're looking forward to uh, to what you what you can tell us. Uh, this these are interesting times, and uh, you have basically the notion that uh, that we are living in a matrix, much perhaps like the movie. And uh, could you explain perhaps what you mean by uh, what is this matrix, and could you give us an idea of what the nature of the matrix is that, that uh, we're living in? Yeah, the matrix is, is uh, a worldview that's presented to you at birth uh, that didn't simply evolve by itself. It's a structured world where you're indoctrinated from birth in a really what seems to be a, an evolving evolutionary manner, but in reality... It was designed that way, and that's not far-fetched at all when you go back to the writings of, of Aldo Huxley and other uh, main authors of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, etc., who were players uh, in the big think tanks that worked for the wealthy elites of Europe, especially Britain. And they were members of the aristocratic families themselves. Huxley, Huxley's grandfather was Sir Thomas Huxley, that was the best friend of Charles Darwin, and he took over the Darwinistic theory that was very important to all of this whole movement on behalf of the elite with eugenics, uh, with class divisions, and how they, t they rationalized what they'd have to do in the future and uh, expand the system of theirs across the globe. Now, on the one hand, they'd tell the public it was for world peace, but in reality, they decided long ago that there would be only one culture, one system worldwide, and they wanted to reshape everything that was left imperfect, as they say, which was basically uh, man himself, the common people. They knew the industrial era would come to an end. They had already plans. I have the books from the Council on Foreign Relations uh, and the Royal Institute for International Affairs from the 1930s, uh, where, from the minutes of their meetings, where they discussed the, the coming world they were going to create. They even discussed a coming World War II, uh, before it happened, before there was any war declared. And they even discussed uh, the fact that you'd have to save the Soviet system by all means. Now, this is all, this is the top institution that's chartered by the British royalty to set up, it was set up to create global government on, on, based on a British system of free trade and enterprise, but also to incorporate the same uh, governmental structures a socialist-type system where you'd have a, almost a fascist elite at the top, which Britain has. It has a monarchy. It's a strange uh, monarchy-democracy when everyone who takes a paycheck from the government swears allegiance to the Queen and not the country or the people. And that's the same for the whole British Commonwealth. And, but that structured system was to go across the whole planet. And in the early 1900s, they, they knew that they had to pass on uh, the torch... Uh, as they say, to the U.S., because that's where the manpower would be for the future. Uh, that was the up-and-coming country for industry, and that's where the big taxation base would be to force this on the world. So the U.S. was to take over from Britain as the world police. And after the U.S. had expended itself with the takeovers of the Middle East and standardizing them under the same system, China was to take over from the U.S. And that was all discussed in the 1930s and published in their own books. So um, I'm, I'm with you 100%. I've, I've been reading along these same lines. Uh, 
Uh, and I'm, I imagine you've read and heard about Cecil Rhodes' will and the uh, roundtable groups of England that functioned yep. around 1900 with, with, with just the mandate that you mentioned, uh, so that yep. America would become uh, the, the kind of the extension of the British Empire, so you would have the Anglo-American alliance, which would, which would essentially right. take over And, and what you find, see, in Britain, they, they, keep, they put out Cecil Rhodes initially to start up a, a, a private non-governmental organization uh, but on behalf of the British elite and the monarchy they would take over the world's resources but then they merged eventually with the Lord uh, Alfred Milner group uh, of Round Table Society that was also chartered by the monarchy they merged together and became the Royal Institute for International Affairs again a private, it sounds very uh, governmental but it's a private non-governmental organization and they would incorporate into their um, membership all politicians at a high caliber and also most reporters of a high caliber and that eventually incorporated down through the years to TV and radio. Uh, you'll find there are members of the CFR for America. They couldn't call it the Royal Institute for International Affairs in, in the U.S., so they called it the Council on Foreign Relations. But it's the same organization uh, from the Pratt Building in New York that they set up. So uh, that was for world government. Rudyard Kipling was sent over at the end of World War I, and he read his famous poem, uh, We Pass the Torch on to You, the White Man's Burden. And uh, that was read in front of the U.S. Senate at the time. Yeah, so really the, the matrix then is, I guess, another term for the New World Order. Would that be correct? Uh, yes, there's no doubt about it. Uh, we, we've been brought up, uh, again, in this false matrix where we're taught that somehow we're all free, However, um, if you look into even the definition of a citizen, it will tell you it's someone born into a system and that person has pre-existing duties to that system. And then you find your numbered for your, with your SIN number, social insurance number, and you're, you're taxed your whole life long. And all you have to do is obey the rules and you're given some time to play and be happy. Uh, as long as you obey the rules, not to ask questions, and to accept under a socialist-type system that the people who come out of special wombs, these elite families at the top, these dynasties that we see entering politics all the time, uh, these people are much more qualified to take care of the bigger problems than you are. So they say. <laughs> yeah. That's what they've trained most folk to believe. Yeah. Uh, how did you get into... Uh, the extent that you've got into uh, uh, the knowledge of this uh, New World Order and Matrix? Yeah, well, as I say, I grew up watching um, the height of the British Empire uh, when they opened up uh, condemned buildings that were condemned a hundred years before I was born because uh, for the first two world wars, they kept promising to give housing to the public and the public, of course, would pay through their taxes and they didn't cough up enough, so they opened up all these condemned buildings. And so I grew up watching and talking to and listening to adults talking and squabbling over money for rent and basic necessities. And I thought, well, how come uh, if Britain is so old and they have this amazing empire over centuries, how come only a few hundred families in London seem to own anything? That was the first clue. So you grew and up. And I realized I was in a system. And that the people were kept in that system through fear, primarily fear of poverty as the, as the main one. That's why they'll always have poverty around you to make sure you're terrified of it. You don't want to end up on the street. 
that's why they, they have homeless in the biggest cities in the Western world. They make sure they're there. They want you to see them. They don't want you to, to, to uh, uh, you know, um, they don't want you to, to realize that you're, you, you could be in a paradise if, if, they, if it's a different system. So they give you the homeless to make sure you're terrified of poverty. They make sure you're terrified of getting sick, uh, loneliness, and all the usual things. And that's how the structured system keeps going. It's based on abuse. Okay, um, and and the uh, uh, could you pipe the, the sound up a bit? I can't hear you. Yeah, uh, the um, the way that this matrix is is perpetuated over time. How would you? How is this done? Could you give us the well at, at the end uh, around the 1700s? They had uh, they had all their wars as the big psychopathic families fought the other ones in other countries, or they had the people fight each other. I should say and they benefited from them. But they knew that the speed of science, even in their day, uh, that the weapons eventually were going to kill uh, masses of people, and they knew the destruction would be terrible. And so they had international meetings. You can go back to the concert of Europe when the elite met uh, after Napoleon, and they decided uh, on ways to keep the population down, because wars had always been used for that reason, even as far back as the days of, of ancient Greece. So um, they had to find ways of keeping the people in check and so they hired the best Machiavellian, uh, Machiavellian uh, type of uh, advisors they could and, and created the early think tanks we are run by think tanks and they planned the future they knew they'd have to give the public something called democracy which really was an idea that y your vote counted uh, someone would speak for you but as everyone really knows today uh, the politicians, uh, once they're in office, they vote for the party. Whatever the party leader says is, is where they go. So it's a complete farce. But we still have that, that impression that we have a say. It keeps us from having a revolution every four or five years. And they discussed that fact as well. So um, they gave us this fake democracy. And then as Professor Carl Quigley said um, in Tragedy and Hope, uh, he said... Uh, um, the reason for war, he said, is primarily to change the cultures of all uh, opposing nations. You can get more done in five years of war than 50 years of peace. So they've used war and democracy. We've had the bloodiest wars ever since they gave us democracy, standing armies and taxation that pays off the debt that's borrowed from the money that's borrowed for the wars. Uh, this was all planned uh, 200 odd years ago, and they knew they would take us eventually to a global system. Alan, I teach uh, physical and environmental geography in my life as a professor, and one of the courses I've been teaching is, is human ecology. And, uh, of course, we talk about environmental issues. And after 911, I've pushed us further and further into geopolitics and even including things like economics and terrorism, et cetera. But one of the things that, uh, you know, becomes obvious when you start to look at the big picture is that we have about three to five thousand different indigenous cultures in this world as well as about 30 million species other than humans yeah. uh, the three to five thousand indigenous cultures each with a history each with their own language uh, to break this system down over which has evolved over thousands and thousands of years into one monolithic culture which I suppose is what the new world order is is, is uh, aspiring to this is an incredible challenge and I guess this is how they intend to do it through wars it's through war, and if you go back into the early writings of even John Stuart Mill, uh, the top economist uh, in, in, in Britain or London in the 1700s, and then his son took over the same name, 
um, they had to categorize the indigenous peoples of the world and through their top meetings and think tanks they'd already come to the understanding that this one economic system must survive at any cost and therefore any everyone would have to fit into that system any people who could not fit into that system and they had already marked out the American Indian in the 1700s they said he wouldn't adapt to, the, to this economic system they'd have to perish and they also had uh, the African the ones who could mimic their own words were mimic the white man could survive but those who could not would perish and they even had the Irish marked down and that was reiterated with H.G. Wells who was a propagandist for the British government in his book, Outline of History. They had these lists drawn up long before Adolf Hitler. This is in the 1700s you're mentioning? Yeah. Okay. And then, and this, of course, is in the midst of about a 900-year war between uh, England and, and uh, Ireland, I guess. <laughs> so the Irish have really struggled to, to maintain their culture over centuries, yes. haven't they? Yeah. And Scotland, I'm, I'm sure, has a, a similar situation. So by virtue of growing up in Scotland, you have a unique... Uh, worldview, uh, a view of the the British Empire. Oh, oh, there's no doubt. Uh, uh, very few people today even know how Britain colonized uh, the Americas um, or Australia. But for the Americas, they couldn't get people to leave their homes. People don't like leaving their homes, especially when you have a very rich culture. And uh, we had the Highland clearances. They literally cleared out uh, millions of people put them on old wrecked ships and the half of them that came across the Atlantic uh, were, were put up to colonize the Americas that's how they, they were put out at a gunpoint onto those ships and the and British for Australia yeah. they, they, used, they, they created thousands of laws in a time of poverty and uh, you could get sent to Australia for stealing a loaf of bread and of course, it was the British East India Company that was uh, a private corporation uh, that was sanctioned by the monarchy in England, uh, which which really founded Jamestown, uh, Virginia. That's that right. Colonized uh, our country. That's right. And even before before that, um, uh, King James had sent out. Uh, you probably heard about the. We know about all the different bubbles they created with the the, the investment boons that they tried and conned all the public out their pension. But the first one was a colonization. Uh, sent from Britain uh, to the mouth of the Amazon River and um, uh, they called it Darius, the settlement Darius after the, the old Persian king and uh, uh, that got wiped out too but thousands of people lost all that they had on these particular ventures going way back then so what we're really looking at is is the uh, kind of extension of an economic cultural system that, that has London as its, as its center would you say that's the case? Oh, there's no doubt. There's, there's no doubt. Uh, when you look at the, the history of uh, and the economic system, and money itself in the coinage form didn't exist before but 800 B.C. And when you look at the, the histories of, of how countries were at war very shortly after money was introduced, and how the trapezi, as the, the Greeks called them, the money lenders, uh, ended up buying and selling whole countries because of debt. Uh, and having wars, once they, they'd taken you over, they'd standardize you into the same system, recruit the young men and send them off to more wars. So it's a takeover. The world is like a big takeover business, uh, taking over one country, one empire after another. And it hasn't stopped yet. The goal has always been globalism. And it's not the same globalism <coughs> or same culture as we think of it today, 
the, the, the system they're going to bring into play is right from Aldo Huxley's Brave New World. They're going to reshape and recreate humans uh, to serve them better. Humans that won't need entertainment, uh, humans who won't even need pay of any kind. Uh, that would be the ideal design. That's the other meaning of ID. Uh, say, could you repeat that last phrase about the ID? Well, that's the other little little hidden little chuckle they have when we, we say ID. Um, it, ID is also ideal design. We are, we are imperfect according to the top boys, and they want to reshape us into being better servants. Okay, you're talking about an intergenerational plan with a, with a specific goal which has been loosely referred to as the New World Order. Could you, uh, could you elaborate on what exactly, what kind of uh, goal or New World Order they, they envision? Yes, it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a utopia for an elite where guys like Charles Galton Darwin, uh, the grandson of Charles Darwin, who wrote the book, uh, The Next Million Years, where he outlined their whole agenda on behalf of the elite and why they'd have to, um, and this is in 1954, 55, he published the book. And he outlined why they'd have to sterilize the people. Well, you probably know the UN reports every year on the sperm count of the Western males, down 75% by the UN's own admission. And it's not a crisis. It just happened according to the book. And how they'd have to um, um, create diseases, introduce diseases into the population, to, to cripple them, make them, un, um, make them unwelcome as marriage partners. Nobody wants you if you're, if you're sick all the time. And that would bring the population down. But they also wanted to go a step further, and that was to introduce genetic interference and genetic in, uh, manipulation, uh, which is really the whole basis of the thing. These are the guys at the top who are the top eugenicists uh, as part of the religion, really. They believe in the class difference. They believe they are... Um, the most evolved species on the planet by their own standards because they've acquired a credible wealth they've managed to hold on to power uh, through generations and that's the ticket to belong to their club Would you say those that who haven't made it we're, we're, the, we're the junk genes as the, as the laughing we call it we're the junk genes and therefore we can be disposed of and why would they, uh, on one hand, try to encourage uh, propagation, and on the other hand, they, you know, it's kind of like sowing seeds. Instead of, you know, planting what you need, they just throw lots out there and then call out what, you know, they don't want. Is that what you're saying? It's, um, well, if, look, at the, if you can take it back to the, the Human Genome Project, it was all over and done with before the public even knew there was, uh, they were doing this project. They were mapping the gene codes of every individual who'd ever had blood drawn. And we, we don't ask any questions as to why. why. Why is this so important to them? And why did it, was there so much secrecy? And, and never mind the incredible amount of money it costs to do it all, but uh, why were they mapping the gene codes of everyone on the planet? Why was this a priority? all done in secret and <clears throat> we do know from writings that have come out since um, there's even a professor in uh, England come out in the Daily Mail uh, this last few days uh, stating they're creating a new type of caste system where there'll be genetically enhanced ones at the top uh, and an inferior class of, of malformed people down below uh, this is now coming out in the mainstream media 
uh, and it's pushed by the same descendants of the same characters that gave us Brave New World. In other words, they're using what they're using on the masses to scare them from, you know, with the poor and that sort of thing. They're also subject to their own propaganda. Then, I mean, does that make sense to you? What I'm saying here. In other uh, words, could you pipe up the, the sound a bit there? Uh, okay, um, th- they're they're somewhat subject to their own propaganda if yeah. if they uh, uh, they do to themselves what they're doing to the rest of us. In a sense, well, they don't really because uh, I, I looked into. Um, the, the laws to do with genetically modified food, for instance, and even though Tony Blair, when he was in, uh, made it a law that all the British would have to eat it and would not be told what was modified and what was not, he made an exception, and that was for all the politicians and, and their own cafeterias and special outlets that would serve the wealthy. We know that the British aristocracy still have uh, masses of farms, you know, uh, they, they grow all their own food. They don't, their, their cattle are not inoculated and pumped full of uh, antibiotics and so on. And they, they have their own granaries, etc. They don't eat what we eat. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. So they really then do envision maybe a splitting off of a, of a, of a master race from the rest of us, and they are that master race, and they are going to they, accomplish this. They truly this. are. Yeah, they truly believe they are. Yeah. And... Uh, they have made their plans so carefully. I mean, everything is interlocking today. Uh, when Rumsfeld said this war could take a hundred years, and uh, anyone who thought at all was saying, well, wait a minute, how long would it take them to take over the Middle East? He wasn't talking about the Middle East. He was talking about uh, uh, changing the cultures and the, and the system for the entire planet. That's what he meant. Um, if I could just uh, make a, a kind of a, a little bit of a diversion here, it might not be a diversion. What is the role, do you think, Alan, of religion in all of this? Well, religions uh, have always uh, had good shepherds, and they always, that means that everyone else who follows is a sheep. And religion has always been used to control people, so there's no doubt about it. And, uh, and a neat thing within human personality is, is a feeling, a sense that there's something bigger out there than just us, something we can't see, but we know it's there, we think it's there. And that's been utilized and used against the public by very clever people for thousands of years. And, um, you know, the, the purpose of the shepherd is always to convince the, the sheep that their directions lay in the same direction, their best interests are in the same direction. That's, that's the, the trick of the shepherd. But of course the function of the sheep, which is one of his most stupidest animals, is to be eaten and to provide wool for his master. Yeah. <laughs> so the analogy of the shepherd and sheep, you would say uh, they've managed to, to, to take that basic kind of biological reality and make it attractive. Uh, by packaging yes. it in in a, in a religion that that uh, makes people want to sign on, is that what you're saying? Yes, and also too, because I mean, it, most people can go into the research, uh, the main, even the mainstream research. It's all what amazes me is the people at the top do publish so much about themselves and their agenda. You don't. H.G. Uh, Wells even called it the open conspiracy because they published what they wanted to do when they wrote all the books for the League of Nations, which became the United Nations. It was all published out in the open. It's just that it was not ex- an exciting read. There's no sex in there or, or detective stories or murders. 
as we know them. Uh, but if they've published their writings, and um, uh, it, what gets me is that uh, they have trained the public, like big players like Huxley, who worked at the Tavistock Institute uh, for propaganda, really, for predictive programming, uh, and he was one of them, along with Sir Bertrand Russell, or Lord Bertrand Russell, who said shortly uh, the public can be made to believe anything with adequate governmental backing and repetition. Well, they've done it. Most folk believe whatever they're told by the mainstream media, and it doesn't occur to them that they're being lied to. So what is the UN's part in this, then? I mean, is it Well, the UN, again, H.G. Wells, who was a propagandist, and he was the one who coined the term the war to end all wars. That's how they got the whole world fighting. Everybody thought there'd be peace at the end of it. And uh, so they used slogans <laughs> to their maximum effect. But H.G. Wells <coughs> um, himself wanted to belong to this elite club, and uh, he was the son of a, a fallen middle-class man who, be, who was a bit of a drunk and whose only employment was to play for cricket teams as a spare part man type of thing. But he was brought up in a wealthy home because his mother was a housemaid or the housekeeper of a, an aristocratic family. And uh, Wells loved the lifestyle, and he began to, to fear even the working people walking past the window. He didn't want to join their ranks, so he, he developed a hatred for the working classes. And, um, and he himself... Um, it, it published a book when the League of Nations was set up and he said this this organization uh, will lead to world government and he said it, effectively all nations now uh, have been neutered because bureaucratic teams can, can negotiate with other bureaucratic teams at the League of Nations without going through the politicians and that's how the world would be controlled and it's true enough no one elects bureaucrats and there's far more bureaucrats who know their own part in this agenda that are given mandates which are intergenerational. And they, they last longer than, than we do. So they can, they can follow through a mandate and uh, they do it quietly and they, they, there's no heat from the public. I've read in, in one of your uh, articles here, uh, Alan, that, that you're talking maybe about some 3,000 people that might be actually running the world. And, and uh, if that's yes, the case... Yes, uh, really, the, the amount of families that run this world, when you look through the, the rich and famous, um, they only boil down to about 3,000. They do have other cousins, etc., and, and second, third, and fourth, etc., uh, down through uh, history and through society. But, uh, but mainly, yeah, there's always about 3,000 of them in the limelight. And we see some of them once in a while at meetings like the Bilderbergers, or other exotic meeting places. Uh, uh, They've even had ones in the past in the Middle East where they, they signed UN Accords. And the, whenever they, they sign an accord towards something at the United Nations, we should look into it very, very carefully because each part of each accord is going to take effect and affect everyone's lives. Uh, the water, even the idea of to take over the water uh, of the whole world, the water supply of the planet, uh, was decided back in, in the 1960s at a world meeting at the United Nations. Well, this is very interesting, and, and you have on your website uh, a copy of Agenda 21, I believe, yeah. and uh, you understand the importance of that. Could you could you relate that perhaps to this uh, this world takeover of resources? Yes, Agenda 21 
is the United Nations agenda for the 21st century, which they published themselves. And what they have uh, down in their books uh, is a plan which will happen. It's actually happening now. Um, apart from taking over all of the resources of the world into these big, uh, very certain selected uh, international corporations, that's where it's all to go. Uh, Carl Quigley called it a new type of feudalism, where the feudal overlords will be the CEOs of corporations. Well, that's already happened with the intertwining of politics and international uh, corporations as a form of fascism. But um, Agenda 21, uh, they even have their own maps where areas within the United States, Canada, and the rest of the world will be habitat areas for humans. And if you look at them, there's going to be a, a big reduction in the population for us all to fit into those particular areas. But they've also set up, just like the Soviet Union had, um, that they've set up uh, big, new, brand new buildings and so on, habitat areas for a bureaucratic managerial elite. Uh, where they won't live in the cramped conditions of the rest of us who will be bunged into the big cities. So they actually have kind of an idea to put most of the masses, the unwashed masses, into maybe an equivalent of reservations or slums and then yes. keep pristine land for themselves. Is that correct? That's correct. And it's quite interesting because you understand these internationalists were talking about world government as far back uh, as Queen Elizabeth I's court in the 1500s. And uh, John Dee wrote about it. He coined the term the British Empire. And he said, uh, he, he said this would be an empire based on the same system as Britain, which was, which was a monarchy, remember. And um, he said we shall introduce free trade for those corporations that, that are worthy to join on condition that their countries adapt the same system as Britain. And he says we shall give them most favored nation trading status. That was in the 1500s. They're signing those very deals with the same terminology today. But, the, but some of that terminology kind of means the opposite of what it It, it, it always trade, does, yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not free trade for the average person or small business. It's for selective, uh, I call them pirates myself, uh, selective corporations only. So Agenda 21, as, as, I, as I understand it, uh, is, is a plan in the United States, which, which this country signed on to under Clinton in the 90s, to, uh, to take large amounts of land and turn it into public land. And yes. then this would then make it off limits to, cer you know, to certain private uses. And then with, uh, with, with the presumed idea, according to some, that this, this public land then might be turned over to these elites. Is that how you understand it? Uh, that's right. Uh, they want to reduce the population. They want the existing populations to start moving into habitat areas. I can see them using uh, the threat of plagues or, or terrorism to move whole, whole peoples into, into the major cities. Like and the I talked to uh, an architect back in the 70s who showed me, or so the 80s, sorry, and he showed me a design for uh, a Toronto and it was a big glass-type dome over Toronto, but a much smaller Toronto. And I, I asked him uh, why it was so small. He says, well, there won't be the same population. I said, well, why the dome? And he wouldn't answer me. And this guy, who was the architect, uh, architecture is his hobby, but he's a professional architect. Um, uh, he, he, Prince Charles is on his polo team. <laughs> so this is a, he's a British lord now. 
And uh, since then, the United Nations has sent me books that they put out asking my opinion uh, on these these very things. They show you habitat areas with these big domes on them. There'll be one for the nurseries, uh, one for the, the working people, and one for the elderly where they get care. And these are huge glass domes. So does that mean that they've uh, made the air uh, a, com- a resource that is uh, saleable? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, what they could tell any population, and this is true, they know they can do this because they've done it already in other ways. They could convince the world, or even one generation that grew up in there, that the world outside was highly toxic and would kill you. Mm. And people would grow up just like the Logan's Run, the same idea and obey and do what they're told and never think of going outside. Uh, Alan, with your with your uh, broad, broad understanding of these things, which I really appreciate and, and, uh, and, and, and you know, really learning a lot here, uh, maybe you can shed light on a situation we have locally here, which I've been involved with. We have in the San Luis Valley, southern central Colorado, a huge aquifer. Uh, yeah. Some say it's the largest aquifer in North America. Is that the Baca Grande? Yes, the Baca Grande. Yeah. I live in the Baca Grande. And yeah. as you know, Marie Strong bought the Baca Grande Ranch back in the 80s and had a plan to export water uh, from that aquifer and make billions of dollars by selling it to Denver. He was yeah. apparently kind of chased out by local environmental groups. He sold it to a guy named Gary Boyce, who was local, who promised to be a good environmentalist. And then within a couple of years, he came up with the same plan. He was also chased out, at which point, a little bit later, that ranch then was sold to the Nature Conservancy, which held it for three years, and then it became, it morphed into about between 2000 and 2003 or four, morphed into the, the larger Great Sand Dunes National Park and the new Baca National Wildlife Refuge. Now, yeah. uh, this is just brand new, and, and yet they haven't even got a plan for the how to manage the Baca National Wildlife Refuge. And yet Lexam Explorations Company, which is out of Toronto, na- which owns the mineral rights, the gas rights, now is has applied uh, for gas permits to drill 14,000 foot down to exploit natural gas. Now, yes. this is this is a... The CEO is Rob McEwen, another one of your fellow Canadians. So we're talking at the players being two Canadian billionaires, Marie Strong and and Rob McEwen. Now, I don't know exactly what we're fighting. Are we fighting uh, an attempt to take the natural gas? Are we fighting an attempt to to get dominion over the water? Or is it both? It's both. This came out in Britain um, about ten years ago. A bunch of politicians voted that they should privatize the waters in Britain and all all the, the, the waterworks systems that the public had built up through their tax money. And then those same politicians left office, and suddenly they became a corporation who ended up owning it. Uh, so they, owned, they voted the bill through, privatized it, and then they, they bought it for peanuts. And we found there were big players behind them. But this, this Lexman Corporation is also based in Britain. And the whole thing was they would take over water and natural gas both together simultaneously. Uh, and they came to Canada to do the same thing, and they're also in the States. They're the ones who are authorized to do it worldwide, water and gas always together. Now, when you say they are the ones, are you talking Lexam specifically or other groups? Is, or are you just talking about British-based corporations? Yeah. You'll, you'll find they're only one part of a corporation, a group, 
that are authorized to do this. They love to camouflage themselves in different countries to throw us off the scent. But like, they're all, like, again, taking their orders from, from London. But the, the, I know that the aquifer you have down there, uh, there was an article here years ago, because Maurice Strong, that was the front man for the Rockefeller Foundation, who funds all these wildlife programs and so on, set his ranch up there, and he was sitting on top of that aquifer for donkey's years. And Maurice Strong is a big player at the United Nations. He ran the World Bank for years. He then was sent over from the World Bank to all places to a job as uh, Ontario Hydro Chief and in charge of the, the electrical supply for the whole of Ontario. He privatized the, the electrical supply, and once he'd done that, he was off again back to the, the United Nations. Uh, so Maurice Strong is a big player, and so whoever takes over from him is part of the same organization. So the, the land in question right now is federal land, and it's U.S. government fish and wildlife. That doesn't seem to matter, does it? No. No, and you, you see, we're living in a, we're, we truly are living in a fascist system. Uh, it's quickly said, Professor Carl quickly says, a new feudal system with the CEOs of corporations being the new feudal overlords, and they get special rights and mining rights and so on, and all of, of this land, even the biospheres that they create for the United Nations, you'll always find that certain corporations are given the rights of mineral and water and so on. So the like the wilderness areas and that sort are just kind of a transition till th- these corporations can come in and utilize the resources. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. And that was discussed back at uh, the Cecil Rhodes Foundation in the early days when they were sent off to take over the mineral rights of Africa, and how they would create uh, suppose big parks everywhere, but in reality they themselves would have the rights without any competition to do all the exploration for the minerals, the gold and the diamonds. So, what, and so, and the land uh, land conservancies and land trusts are uh, part of this type of. Um, uh, yes. Okay. Could you explain? The interweaving how? of this is, is so amazing. It took so, such a long time to set it all up, uh, and it's only now that, that some of the public are catching on when, it's, when it all clicks together. That, that none of this you realize that none of this happened by chance. It took a lot of planning, and this is all over the world right now. And you'll find the same corporations, the same people floating about across the world, these big heavy players doing the same thing in your country as they are in Africa, for instance. Is it, is it likely that there are agents, say, of the military, the CIA, and the corporations themselves who are, who are working at all levels to make sure this plan goes through? Uh, there's no doubt. In fact, uh, at the end of World War II, in fact, during World War II, uh, they had meetings in London, and um, at that time they had the OSS, uh, and they used to call the top man the Wizard of Oz, and uh, that became the CIA for, for the U.S. They sent Stevenson over to create it, and they created the MI6 in Britain, and uh, they both had the same mandate, really, and that was to infiltrate all areas of education, media, um, inter- all information, and basically run and guide the show. And then they set up the main uh, wire lines, AP routers, etc. And that was also to all get the same information or disinformation to standardize our thoughts and opinions. And it's true enough, everyone parrots what they hear on the news and never dawns on us we're being lied to or treated like sheep or guided along a certain path of thought. We take everything for granted and we're living, that's what I mean by the matrix. We're in the matrix. So... In terms of kind of some skillful uh, way to 
to oppose <laughs> the 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 resource takeover by these by these government uh, and private uh, entities um, what do you have any advice whatsoever i mean we're dealing with a lot of money we're dealing with a lot of power we're dealing with yep. military power we're dealing with control of the press we're we're dealing with people that have a lot on their side so and we as as uh, as volunteer type uh, citizens we might form a you know San Luis Valley Citizens Alliance or a Water Watch Alliance or whatever and we might hold little meetings um is it is it futile to oppose this this agenda or do we just have to do the best we can I think we have to go about it in a different way because what you find is that the, the politicians are always in the pockets of the top boys. Professor Carl Quigley in his book, The Anglo-American Establishment, which everyone should read, it fills in all the blank pages in history and all the stuff we're talking about here. It tells you who started the wars, what they hoped to gain, and the, the kind of societies they hoped to bring through afterwards. And uh, in Anglo-American Establishment, he talks about, uh, he said, it's not necessary that we, the Council on Foreign Relations, um, have every politician as a member, it's only necessary that in every uh, house that comes in, we have the top man, that's the president, and his main advisors around him uh, to be members. The rest of them are allowed a minor form of competition below them, but the ones at the top are always in the Council of Foreign Relations. And he said for 50 years, he published the book in the 1960s, he said for 50 years, this parallel government has been in operation. So a lot of these uh, people that are in these organizations below the head people may not have uh, have a clue of what the head person is really up to. Is that what you're saying? They don't have a clue, and most politicians, and I have no faith in politicians, I, I put them in the... Psychiatry used to label them under uh, attention-seeking hysterical psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's very true. Politicians want to play the game uh, to get brownie points with their, their seniors, they want to climb the ladder, and as soon as they've left you, you've voted them in. They don't represent you. They vote with the party leader. And so the whole point of, of voting locally is, is kind of deemed pointless uh, if the guy doesn't speak for you. Uh, they don't make decisions. They vote with the party. And so we don't really have representation, and we don't have complaints departments in the system because it is a parallel government, Sorry. and they haven't given us any complaints department. Um, Alan, uh, before we leave this subject of the water monopolies and the privatization and the Agenda 21, uh, I asked you, uh, you know, what we could do, and you said you, you thought we have to do something different. And yep. I was kind of hanging on your words there, and then we shifted to, uh, what, what would you recommend? Well, <clears throat> I think for, the, for one thing, anyone getting taxpayers' money as a paycheck should have the, the, every organization that they've ever given an oath to on the books so the public can see it. Uh, every affiliation they belong to, every group. Um, and you'll find with most of them, they're internationalists. They're all international. Even the Police Chiefs Association is worldwide. And almost every police chief in, in the planet is a member of this organization now. They take their orders and their mandates to do with right checks and all the stuff that we see. It all comes from the United Nations. So, so your, your suggestion then is to get very detailed biographies of the individuals who are the main powerful players and then publish those and, and then ask them for some kind of uh, accountability. Is that what you're saying? That's right. I mean, people who've already pledged themselves 
through organizations uh, which are international in structure, how can you possibly vote them in uh, to protect your national interests? It's, impo- it's, 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 it's a dialectic right there. It doesn't work, and that's what's happened for so long. Uh, when FDR gave you the New Deal, and people don't realize what he meant by that. That was the Constitution out the window. He, he says, here's the New Deal. And they gave you the new system that was to be set up under the United Nations. And that's what they've done since. We, we'll be given a, a, a phony type of government, uh, while the, the real government's been racing ahead uh, with its agenda. Yeah. So, so with you being, uh, I, I mean, I, I see you're working hard to get the word out, and is that um, just to kind of get people to wake up? And then, you know, do you have any other suggestions beyond that? I mean, yeah, I, I think we have to uh, stop following the media and entertainment. I hate to say it, but uh, um, Bertrand Russell, um, Aldo Huxley, other ones since uh, have said. That um, in fact now there now I have depublic or, or um, declassified documents from the British government and the American government uh, admitting that the CIA and MI6 created and uh, the whole culture industry and ran it since the 1940s onwards. Uh, that was all the dances that you ever did, all the kinds of music they made popular, the kind of art you saw the trends and, and promiscuity, all that stuff was fostered from the top, and it was guided. It wasn't by chance. So you would say and, that... Uh, that's now declassified. They even tell you the names of the characters involved who were given the, the money and the missions. And uh, this, is, this is real stuff. It's not conspiracy. It's now declassified after 50 years of, of the startup. So it's the MI6 and the CIA that gave us the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and uh, our other popular icons in the culture? That's right. Well, and, and even the type of music. Well, now, I, I read in your bio that you're a musician. I'm also a musician, and uh, I find it fascinating. So you're saying it's a bit of a rigged game, that there are certain people perhaps who, uh, who yeah. are being backed by uh, big money interests, and there are others who are not. Is that what you're saying? Uh, that's right. Um, there's no doubt about it. Uh, even the top novelists, by the way, uh, were given money to write about their, their particular topic in the novel, and that's called predictive programming. Uh, we, 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 through fiction, we see things through drama and fiction, things to come, and because subconsciously we accept it, it's no big surprise when it comes into real life, and we just adapt to it. We don't, we don't say no, we just think it must be a natural evolution, and it isn't, it's because we've been familiarized with it through drama and fiction, and we've been geared up to this point, and what's happened to society, we've lost our natural bonding with, our, with the people around about us, and we've been isolated even in our own homes, uh, watching that little glowing tube uh, every night, and that's giving us our indoctrination, and now people actually will prefer uh, the glowing tube talking to a real person half the time. Yeah, it seems like if you come up with some something that isn't uh, purported off of that thing, then you're uh, uh, a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love it. I love the conspiracy theory. And that's been promoted from the top, again, to give it a label, uh, to discredit it. And, I, and I, I say, well, what's the alternative? It's coincidence theories. Because otherwise you're supposed to believe that everything that happens is just a coincidence. It's a coincidence that the... That the that uh, the New American Century Club published uh, its agenda for the Middle East 
with a, with a war beginning with Afghanistan, then Iraq, then Iran, then Syria, in 1992, and all the major players are in power right now in the U.S. government that belong to that club, they republished it in 1998, and then they get their wish in 2001. They can start the ball rolling. Quite the remarkable coincidence, huh? Isn't it, though? <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've uh, been gleaning just by watching life go by. I'm 58 years old now. That those who really seem to have the microphone in some kind of public forum somehow or another seem to be serving the, uh, the power structure. Uh, yeah. Would you say that that's true in this sense, that the CIA, the MI6, have, have been supporting and promoting certain kinds of, of authors, certain kinds of musicians, certain kind of uh, yeah. people in all across the spectrum of, of life? Oh, oh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, uh, I'm going to publish the declassified stuff that's there, and this is from governments. It's not, I'm not making it up or taking it from some comic book. This is from governments, and they come out with the... the, the, the the top men who threw the money around and who promoted the big groups, the type of music, the, even the drug culture was, it was imperative to get everyone on drugs uh, while they rushed an agenda through. Everybody was stoned, nobody cared. Meanwhile, they had wars going on across the planet and in Latin America, and no one cared about them. This is all part of the agenda, and uh, the promiscuity was to destroy the last vestiges of the family unit. They said that in their own writings. They had to destroy the family unit because it represented a form of small tribe, and their job was to eventually have the government talk directly to you as an individual with no one standing around you or between you and standing up for you. And that's where we're almost at today. I, I agree. Now, the Dalai Lama is a bit of an enigma here because uh, I'm a Tibetan Buddhist. We have a lot of Buddhists in Crestone where I live. In fact, you might call it Buddhaville. Um, the Dalai Lama is certainly got the international microphone. Uh, the, you see his front his picture on the front page of the paper. You see Congress lining up to give him this Medal of Honor with bipartisan support. What function does the Dalai Lama play with this? Do you have well, a sense of that? Back in the 1800s, when they, you see, they knew that, um, and the elite knew that in Britain, for instance, um, uh, they'd have to bring in a new religion for the world step by step. Now, we're dealing with people who plan in centuries even. And they created a theosophy. That was the first step. They wanted to get mainly women for the first time into a type of Freemasonic society. And they'd mix it with... And Blavatsky, she was the head of it. In her own words, it was to mix um, uh, Eastern mysticism with Christianity, bring out a new religion, and then dispose of the old along the way. And, and that, so since then, they started to push out all the stuff about India primarily. They married it with Hinduism. And, and then they, they brought in Buddhism. And so these were all methods to uh, uh, train thousands, maybe even millions of people that nothing really mattered, nothing was real anyway. It was all illusion. And when you're all believing that, you can get pushed off in any direction. And, and that's what the, the purpose of that particular movement was. The Dalai Lama, I mean, uh, he's born again and again and again. Well, the born-again Christians are only born once. So it's a con game. You must always use all the shepherds you can. Well, you know, uh, the uh, one thing you haven't talked about, although you, you, what you're saying is completely consistent with many things that I've read about the Rothschild banking family and uh, Amschel Mayer Rothschild in 70, 1776 founding 
the Illuminati with uh, Adam Weishaupt and uh, and this then uh, having a, a, a program for world domination, which would involve the the uh, the abolition of religion, abolition of the family, abolition of private property, yep. abolition of all the institutions that might stand in the way of complete control of the masses by this very very tiny elite. Uh, would you would you and would you care to? Uh, uh, and, and of course, this then might also have morphed into the Zionist uh, movement uh, and the communist movement. Uh, yep. Would you also see these as part and parcel of the same overarching plan? Uh, there's no doubt about that part of it. Um, uh, strategically, they looked upon the whole world and how they'd have to bring it down over time. And uh, you'll find in the writings of the man who was put in as the lieutenant governor on behalf of the royalty. In other words, he had the rights of a king uh, over Palestine in the 1920s and 30s with Sir Ronald Storrs, and he wrote his own memoirs. And in there he said that, that we have put in to the Middle East a new Ulster. And what he meant by that, he, that he put in a different people with a different religion who end up dominating the rest, and it'll cause strife down through the ages, which you can then use eventually one day in the future and change the whole system as a resolution to the actual strife caused. Old techniques, and uh, that's in his own book, and he was the top man uh, that literally had the rights of a king in Palestine. So they, they knew they were going to set up um, uh, a new state of Israel, and they knew the conflict that it would cause by doing it, and that's why he called it a new Ulster, because England had done that in Northern in Ireland, they put in a lot of Protestant, mainly Scotsmen actually, uh, staunch Presbyterians who were loyal to the crown, the, the, the London crown, and uh, they were called Orangemen after William of Orange. Um, the, the Orange is the Orange Free State, really initially it came from The Hague in Holland, and so he was backed by the bankers. This is an ongoing long-term plan, and, uh, and, um, and so they use all of these techniques, but especially uh, as I say, the religious differences and the different people, you're guaranteed strife. And uh, even in ancient times, you'll find that some of the big conquerors in the Middle East would move whole populations into another population or a populated area and sit back and watch the, the fun and games and then change it all a hundred years down the road. Uh, I've read people talk about the world conspiracy as a Zionist conspiracy, as a Jewish conspiracy, as a Jesuit conspiracy, as a conspiracy of the international bankers. Uh, what is your take on it? Well, yeah, they love to segregate it all from each other. It's all one part and parcel of the same thing. Uh, because uh, when you go into the elite histories of the aristocracy, uh, they don't care if you're Mohammedan or Jewish, or Christian, or whatever background. People at that level don't believe in the religions uh, which they preside over. They're way beyond uh, religion. They understand, they're taught very early on that religion is to control the public into an orderly society. And they don't believe uh, what they call fairy tales or superstitions. They have their own religion at the top, and it's pretty well a form of Hinduism, almost, uh, which believes... I mean, that's where Darwinism comes from. Uh, you'll find it didn't start with Darwin. It started with Hinduism, where we started off as amoebas in the slime and, and gradually worked our way up from there. Uh, survival of the fittest is all part and parcel of their religion. And uh, they intermarry each other. 
uh, you, you'll find people who supposedly are Jews or Christians or whatever intermarrying with uh, the royal families if they curry enough favor and if they've done all the right kinds of work for uh, the great work, as they call it, uh, the global domination. So are you saying that they're tracking genetically? It doesn't really matter what their their affiliation is with? Is that what you're saying? Yes, uh, they really don't, because at that level, um, they don't. it's like any aristocracy. There's a Jewish aristocracy. Uh, there's a, a, an Islamic aristocracy. There's always an aristocracy that separates itself from the people. Even though they'll go to all the top uh, holy um, sermons or functions, and the public see them as the best that they have, and they're all one of us. That's the idea. But they don't. They don't. They don't believe the same things either. That the rest of the public believe. One of the uh, well, many things that people like Anthony C. Sutton, who wrote uh, the first book on skull and bones, uh, secret fraternity out of Yale that our president and his father and his father are in uh, believe that this group is basically satanic. Would you, would you agree with that? It's satanic in the sense that uh, they worship themselves. Um, if you look, what, a, what is a god uh, or, or what is even a satan? A satan is something, um, if you take the, even the Lucifer figure is more accurate really because in ancient religions they were two separate entities. Uh, Satan and Lucifer eventually got mixed together but uh, Lucifer is Prometheus who brings light to the world intellect to those who can receive it that's what it means and these characters use this terminology about, about themselves they believe that the wisest and brightest uh, and therefore the most uh, fit to rule over the lessers those in the darkness which they call the profane that's what they mean by the, the darkness uh, those who don't understand so it's a religion in that sense. Um, evil, there's no doubt about it. Uh, what's interesting, if you look at a psychopath um, and list up all of the scientific descriptions and classifications of psychopathy and the traits that they have with no conscience, uh, huge egos, how they'll do the audacious things, things that no one would ever expect to happen, um, and then you, you put it right next to what they used to call demonology. They're both identical, or demonic possession. In other words, they're cruel. Um, they, can, they can plan the deaths or, or wars, which will kill off millions of people, profit from them, and go out and have parties after the meeting. I mean, uh, that's not what we normally call human. So it's up to the individual if you want to accept a psychopath or if there's something else to it but the treats are identical. Um, Alan, I'm going to need to do a station identification here and a quick break, and then we'll get back. Uh, this okay. Is, okay. This is TruthQuest, and our guest tonight is Alan Watt with uh, co-host Dr. Carlstrom, and this is KHENLP 106.9 Salida. And I also wanted to read the disclaimer, the opinions expressed by the host and guests on this show do not necessarily represent the views of Kay Hannett's staff or board of directors.